We're going to keep jumping into James tonight, and I appreciate you being here. I'm excited about the Word of God, especially if I can find my notes. There they are. You you think about that for a second. If I didn't have my notes, we might have to just, it'd be freestyling. I'd be, I would be freestyling. Uh, And uh, I'm kind of lean on my notes, so so you got to have notes. Uh, we're going to jump into James again tonight as we go on this journey through James. And I want to kind of just hit a couple of high points and, and kind of tell you where we were last week. And then we're going to look in James 2. We're going to get a snapshot of James 2. There's really two thoughts that James addresses in chapter 2. Remember, who is James? James is whose brother? He is Jesus' little brother. And let me tell you, the more I read James and the more I put this into context and the more I look at the Word of God here in the book of James, I go, man, this guy is one stout-hearted senior pastor. He's strong. I'm telling you, if I shared some of the things the way he shared things, you might want to go to another church because he just was, he's strong. And maybe it's the fact that it's the written Word rather than being right up in your business uh, how, how many of you know, sometimes the Word of God's like a nosy pepper? Anybody what a nosy pepper is? Somebody that's a nosy pepper? They get, they get jalapeno business. And tonight, the Word of God's going to get jalapeno business because, whoo, it's powerful stuff. So, James chapter 2, you, you get ready. The theme of this whole book, and, and let me just remind you, and just so you'll know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, never followed Jesus and looked to him as God until after the resurrection. Post-resurrection, he realized, in fact, the resurrected Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrected Christ, the half-brother from a biological standpoint uh, of, uh, of Jesus, spent a little quality time with James. And James had a fresh perspective. In fact, the first verse is, James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ not the half-brother of Jesus, he realized, oh, this, is, this guy was really not my brother. He's the Son of God, and I am his bond servant. And so he had a revelation. And, and once he had that res- revelation of the resurrected Christ, very quickly James began to be a, a strong leadership influence in the first century church. In fact, uh, as Acts rolls on, you begin to see him operating in a pastoral fashion. And you know what happened in, in the book of Acts very quickly after the Holy Spirit was poured out? Uh, the persecution began to arise in the early church. And the Bible says they were scattered abroad. And they were scattered because of persecution. In fact, it says in James 1.1, who's he writing to, or verse 2, to those who have been scattered abroad. He's writing to those who were scattered from the first century church. Uh, in its heyday moment. And the Bible teaches that in Acts that, the, that where they went, the church began to prosper and grow. How many of you know God's promises and His purpose will be realized even through the hard times? Because if you read Acts, Acts chapter 1, it says, When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, uh, he left out the part right there that the way you get there is through persecution. Uh, I guess he didn't want them to know that right then. Uh, but uh, they began to be persecuted, so they were scattered. And, and James is writing this letter to them and to the churches that are beginning to pop up because of this scattered church that was really a multiplying church. How many of you know God's a God of multiplication? 
And he can multiply your ministry and, your, and, and, and the blessings of God in your life uh, uh, through adverse circumstances. Did you know God's not opposed to using adverse circumstances in your life? In fact, my friend Ron Hammond says this, God has a plan. He will succeed, even if it cost him your life. He's not, he's, not, he's not averse to offering up his own for the sake of the kingdom purposes. And that's why we all are living sacrifices. And so, James, in this letter uh, to the scattered church, really the multiplying church that was growing and prospering in these different areas, under the, under the, the banner of the prophetic anointing and the Holy Spirit in their life, uh, he, he comes and what his real focus in this book is, is to ensure that they had a faith that works, a working, living, thriving faith. And tonight we're going to look at that. It's a, it, he was really teaching them the importance of developing a faith that works. Now, works not only for you, but through you. In fact, tonight we'll see that the faith that God has is not just a faith that, that helps me. It's a faith that works through me. And, and we'll see that more tonight in the latter part of our message tonight. So he, he knows. And the reason, hey, the reason he's hitting this so hard is because how many of you know faith is the cornerstone of all of Christianity? It's the, it's the revelation of God for the just, those who have been justified, what, what's Martin Luther say? The just shall live by what? Faith. It's not by obeying the rules. It's by faith. Are you with me? Say amen. So here comes James coming along. He said, we gotta, we got to undergird these New Testament churches that are being birthed all over the region. we got to undergird their faith. And so he's developing within them a faith that works. And not only for them, but through them. Last week, we looked at the last part of James chapter 1, and we, if you remember, if you were here, I rode my bicycle around as an illustration, and it's, it, was, it was a two-fold thing. you got to have both. How many of you know it's hard to ride a bike without one pedal? The two pedals was hear the word and do the word. Hear the word and do the word. That was last week, and so we got to keep that up. You realize you can't just be a hearer only. You've got to be a doer of the word. In fact, the Bible says there in James 1, if you're a doer of the word, you'll be blessed in whatever you do. How many of you want to be blessed in everything you do? You've got to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only who looks like... And James, he, I love his illustrations. We just think it's just, it's just like the guy who hears but doesn't do. He's like a guy who looks himself in a mirror and he comes back a little while later and goes, Who are you? Oh, oh, that's me. I forgot what I look like. Yeah, it's, just, it's just ludicrous. You cannot, you've got to be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. That was last week. And so tonight we're going to jump into James chapter 2. Uh, <clears throat> and we're really going to look at the whole book of James. Uh, pardon me, the whole chapter of James 2. There's really two parts. Uh, so let's jump in. Everybody say, let's jump in. All right, here we go. Well, we're going to title this first part, Big I, Little You, question mark. How many of you know that in culture today, there's, there's some of this even prevalent. Big I, little you. I'm important, you are not. Or I'm more important than you are. Big I, little you. So let's just jump in. I'm going to read the first part of this, and then you'll begin to see it. Here we go. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Everyone say partiality. 
And then he gives illustrations. For if there, and, and I love James because he's, a, he's an illustrated sermon guy. He's giving you illustration. For if there should come into your assembly a man with a gold rings and find apparel, and there, there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here in, in a footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil faults? Question mark. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme and the, the noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you should love your, your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do mur murder, have you become a transgressor of the law? Uh, pardon me, he says, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Everyone say the law of liberty. Now, if you remember from last week, he talked about the law of liberty, looking into the perfect law of liberty, the principles of God's word that bring liberty. How many of you know these folks had come out of legalism, which was bondage, into liberty? And so he's having to address that again to a certain extent. And he says, he says this, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now I'll come back to this, but let me just finish these verse 13. For judgment is without mercy. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And everybody said amen. Now that's, that's a dissertation, if you will, uh, about the, 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 the times of their day, and their times of their day uh, was big I, little you. There was issues in the church that was making some people seem more important than others, and others less important. How many of you know Scripture goes contrary to that mindset? And he's addressing that. He's really affirming to these churches the new culture of what I call kingdom equality. What he's addressing is that, hey, in God's kingdom, everyone's equal. How do you appreciate that? Now, where did that, where did this inequality, if you will, or this prejudice or this discrimination come from? He's addressing the, the, the favoritism and the discrimination that was prevalent in the early church, no doubt. And he comes and he says, now, we got to talk about this. Because in the church, there's discrimination and favoritism. And what was that first word he used over there? He said, partiality. You're showing preference to some and you're, re and, and you're not showing care and concern for others. How many of you know God loves everybody just the same? Where did that come from in the first century church? My goodness, how could that creep in so quickly? It did so because of that was the culture of the day. The culture of the day was rich man, poor man. There was the rich and there was the poor. There was a caste system in a sense. 
And this is just the way culture was. If you were rich and wealthy, you, hey, you got the best seats. If you were poor and, and lowly, you got the worst. That was the culture of the day. Now, let me stop and say, if we're just from a broad paint stroke, let's learn this lesson about this moment here. You say, well, how does that affect us today? Because that's really not applicable today. Well, in certain circumstances, it may be. But here's, here's a broad stroke lesson. Don't let culture determine who you are and how you relate with others. And James comes along and says, man, we got to address this new kingdom culture that you've got to get, get a grasp on. In God's kingdom, it's, it's contrary to what you've been used to. You cannot let the culture of this day undermine and influence you in the local church. Are you with me? <coughs> and you know what? There's a lot of... Hey, I'll get off topic. I'll get off, I'll get off topic for a moment. How many of you know our culture is, is endeavoring to undermine the foundational cores of who we are as, as God's people? From every side. And if nothing else, James is saying to the church, do not let culture influence you. In fact, conversely, who are we to be? People who influence culture. You know, there's, there's issues today in the local church that are just harder to deal with than they were 20 years ago. I mean, in fact, here's the scoop. In, the, in, the, in 1980, the average pastor in America of an evangelical church knew about 80% of his congregation is going to be there on any given Sunday. Okay, he knew that. 80% going to show up in 1980. But today, it's about 50%. Culture has, has, has undermined some things, and it makes it harder for a pastor and church leaders to do the things that were relatively easy. For example, to get a message across to your church family, you got to get really creative because on any given Sunday, you're only going to have about 50% of them there. So you got to repeat yourself about five times because they're, all, they're not all just, I'm coming this week, you come that week. No, they just scatter it all out. So it takes about a month to get one thought across to your church family. It's a challenge. Why? Because culture has changed. In fact, I talked to one of the moms here. I said, where's them not head boys? She said, they're in the gym. The gym's open on Wednesday night and they're, they're in this physical fitness thing. They've got to get. And so she said, I don't know if I liked it on Wednesday night. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. But hey, what's that culture? I remember a day when there was nothing goes on on Wednesday night. You know why? At school, church, you don't have things on Wednesday night. You know why? Because this church not bless God. I mean, you know, that's different today. Oh, it's really different. So, uh, uh, hey, that's just my little soapbox. Let's jump on here. Because he, he's addressing uh, the, 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 the church not to allow that to happen. Now, in reference to favoritism and discrimination, it was prevalent in the early church. Let me show you this in Acts chapter 6. Whip over there. I'll try to move quickly, but I don't want you to miss this. Now, Acts chapter 6, there was some issues. How many of you know there's always issues? And here were the issues. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, in other words, church is growing, things are going good. Let me tell you something. Uh, when you got people involved, there's going to be issues. Amen. It says this, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Let me explain it to you. Uh, in that day, Jerusalem became a hub of ministry. And widows, primarily older women whose husbands had died, they didn't have any way of support, so they came to Jerusalem 
And the church tended to those widows. And there was a great benevolence ministry. And so the widows would serve and help, but they would, they would be supported by the church. Now, it says there was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, let me explain this to you. The, it was really two kinds of... The Hellenists and the Hebrews were two facets of Jewish people, really like two, not different uh, tribes, if you will, but in the church, the primary, all the leaders of the church were Hebrews. They were Jews who spoke Aramaic. It was the primary language of the church in Jerusalem. Now, these Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek, which was the common language of the day. And, and the inference is kind of the common folk among the Jews. These, these, and here's the complaint. It says, the Hebrew widows are being treated better than the Hellenist widows. There's partiality in the church. Now, Think about James. Who was James? James, half-brother Jesus. Who was he? Uh, probably by, at least by the middle of Acts, he's the pastor of the church, certainly in leadership position here. Though James is not mentioned here, here's what they decided to do. Then the twelve summoned, that's the apostles, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. There's a different... Uh, uh, you know, it said, why are we dealing with this? Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we'll give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let me just jump down to yeah, verse five. And, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and these guys. Now, here's the scoop. Here's the cool thing that you and I probably didn't know before today, before this moment. Here Here's the primarily Hebrew leadership of the church. Here's a complaint from the Hellenist uh, uh, faction of the Jews who were there, who were born again, who says, you're not taking good care of our widows. You're showing partiality. You're showing preference. You're showing favoritism. So the, so the 12 came together and they said, you know what? We need to appoint seven guys of wisdom and revelation full of the Holy Ghost. And you know, what they appoint, the people they appointed, do you know what kind of names they all had? They had Greek names. In other words, they said, we'll fix this. We'll appoint the Greek Hellenist leaders to fix this problem. How many of you know that was wisdom? That's just great wisdom among those guys. So here we have James now writing a letter. He, and he had firsthand experience of this going on in the church. He said, we can't have this. This is not what we're, this is not what we're all about. Uh, we're not about favoritism and partiality. Uh, and so with that in mind, let me give you just from this passage that I read what I'll call core values for living in God's kingdom of equality. Some core values of living in God's kingdom of equality. So here they are. Number one from verse four, God's kingdom of equality makes him the judge of the kingdom. Look in verse four of, of oh, I'm got to get back to James. Here we go. Uh, look in verse four of James chapter two. Look what he says. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Question mark. Now, I'm kind of stretching this here, but what he's saying is, you don't have any business being the judge. If you show partiality, you're becoming the judge. And let me just say to you, when it comes to God's kingdom, none of us are the judge. Who's the judge? 
He's the judge. And so, hey, here's a principle, a core value of kingdom equality. We are not people who should judge anyone. In fact, what did Jesus say? Everybody say, what did Jesus say? Look at Matthew chapter 7. Let's just look at, come on, everybody say, what did Jesus say? Let me show you in Matthew chapter 7 what he said, verse 1 and 2. He said, judge not that you be what? Not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at your speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank that is in your own? Oh, how you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. I like this, chapter uh, 7, verse 5. Hypocrite! But Jesus, boy, we, we wouldn't like his preaching either, would we? Hypocrite! Everybody go, hypocrite! Hypocrite. You know, somebody said it ain't right to point fingers. Well, Jesus can because he's the judge. Now, we're not finger pointers. I've always said if you point a finger at somebody, you got FOMO pointing back at you. But Jesus is the judge. In fact, the scripture teaches in 2 Timothy 4 1, there'll come a day uh, when we'll all stand before him. He'll judge us for our good works. He's the judge. So, in God's kingdom of equality, we realize wait, I am not the judge. I don't judge anybody. Now, I can inspect fruit, but I'm not the judge. I can report back to the judge, but I am not the judge. Look at your neighbor and say, you are not the judge. And then you say, neither am I. We are not the judge. And so when it comes to, hey, kingdom equality and, and, and having a, a judgmental or an eye of partiality. And in fact, I've actually seen this in operation. I won't, put, I won't name places, but I... I, we had a really, in, in one of the churches I served in, we had a really influential guy come to the church. I mean a really influential guy. I can't remember who he was. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I better not. Uh, but the pastor of that, you don't know who that was. The pastor of the day was showing, was really spending time with him after church. Just And right outside the exit door, uh, we have these real steep concrete steps. A visitor fell down some concrete steps, was laying in the parking lot, could be a lawsuit. You know, you think, ah. And, and I saw it, and everybody saw it, and he saw it. And, and he said to me, uh, could you take care of that? And I went, okay. I went out to take care of it. In my mind going, OMG. No, they didn't do that back then. There was no such thing as OMG. I went, OMG. That's not, hey, there's a lawsuit laying out there on the parking lot. Uh, who do you want to talk to? Influential man or the person who could sue you for everything? You, uh, even on that, I mean, just, ah, I've seen that happen in the church. Okay? And so, hey, Paul, Paul says, pardon me, James says, hey, you just made yourself the judge and jury. You are not the judge and the jury. He's the judge. Everyone say, he's the judge. All right. And then Jesus, of course, addressed Matthew 1. You're looking at other people, and you judge them, and you show partiality and say, well, he's good, he's bad, and I'm going to fix him. He says, and you're not fixing yourself. You've got to look in your own life. You go judging somebody else. You've got to look in your own life. Everybody say, look in your own life. I'm telling you, how many of you, all of us, you just thank God somebody can't read our minds and look into our world just for a minute. Are you with me? <laughs> Just for a minute. No, I don't want people looking at my life for a minute. I don't. Hey, because God is the judge. All right. The second core value that we see from James, God's kingdom of equality is contrary to present culture. 
It's contrary. We address that. But go back to James. Let me show you this. He, he says, you need to understand God's kingdom of a, God's kingdom is contrary. Look in verse five and six. Uh, he says this. Uh, he says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God chosen not the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? What's he saying? The culture we live in, my friend, is contrary to present culture. You need to understand that. The principles of God. Hey, love your enemies? Hello? That's contrary to... And everything about God's kingdom is contrary primarily to the culture of the day. And so you need to understand that. Hey, I'm living in a culture... I'm, I'm living in a kingdom whose culture is contrary to the world I live in. That's why Jesus prayed for us in John 17. They're in the world, but God, don't let them be of the world. That's a core value. Hey, we're in this thing together. And God forbid. And, he, and here's what he said. He said, you're judging your brother. Don't the rich people judge you? Hello? You're bringing the culture of the day into the church. Everybody say, shame on us. All right, here we go. Core value number three, God's kingdom of equality is governed by love. Not by our, our judgmentalism. Look in verse eight. He says this, if you really fulfill the law, the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Now, who said that love your neighbor as yourself? Anybody want to guess? Jesus said that, but he wasn't the first one to say that. <gasps> Did you know, let's see, uh, Leviticus 19. Now, this is cool to me. When you, Leviticus 19, this is actually a quote from the law. It's a quote from the law. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. But who came to fulfill the law? Jesus came to fulfill the law and he came along and he reaffirmed that one. And this is what James is referencing as well from both sides. Jesus said, uh, let me just get it. There's a couple of gospels. I think it's Matthew 22. Uh, Matthew uh, 22 verse 37. What did he say? There's two great, com there's two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, it's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the great commandment. He came to fulfill it. And, and what James comes along and saying about this partiality issue, listen, our kingdom is governed by love for one another. Just like God loves us. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbor just like we love ourselves. It's governed by selfless love. And he's getting to the core of who we are as Christianity. Hey, it's a kingdom of equality. And if you're judging one another, you're not walking in love. You're walking in some other legalistic, uh, self-serving mindset. In fact, catch this. Partiality and favoritism reveals selfishness in our heart rather than selflessness. Okay? Number four core value for living in God's kingdom of equality. God's kingdom of equality is where mercy triumphs over judgment. Everyone say mercy triumphs over judgment. In fact, when he finishes this thought, he says this, I just love this. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. In other words, if you're not merciful and loving and caring and compassionate towards 
Not only the wealthy, but the, but the poor. Not only the uppity, but the, you know, there's down and outers and there's up and outers. They're both going to hell. We need to love them all. We all got problems. How many of you know, uh, no matter where you are in this secular uh, culture of pecking order, we're all equal in the eyes of God and we're all uh, sinners who have the potential to be saved by grace. Uh, come on now. And, and he finishes this thought going, listen, you need to understand. You're judging others. And if you don't show mercy, guess what? There's no mercy going to be shown to you. For whatever you sow, you're going to reap. That's my little insert there. But he says, listen, mercy always wins. How many of you, I have a fr- pastoral friend. If you can be too merciful, he's too merciful. With staff members and others, he'll tell me stories and I say, cut it off. It's a bad seed. Go ahead and get rid of them. It's going to get worse. No. And I, but you know what? Mercy always triumphs over judgment. Everyone say, mercy always triumphs over judgment. Come on, it always does. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in our dealings with, with the kingdom, in our dealings with the, with the brothers, hey, how many of you know, just like I said, uh, when you get people involved, there's issues, right? And James comes along, hey, we're growing a church. You guys are up there, I heard, you're, this is Pastor Sam's paraphrase here. My, you guys, you've been scattered, but you're up there, you're doing good, great. The church is growing. Read Acts. The church was growing all up through there. Let me tell you something. More people, more problems. You cannot show partiality. You cannot let the culture of the day undermine the culture of God's kingdom of equality. Be merciful to these people. Have mercy. Somebody say, have mercy. Aren't you glad somebody had mercy on you? Amen. Jesus had mercy on us. And so we are people of mercy. So, hey, that's part one. Big eye, little you. It's no, no place in the kingdom of God. It's, it's, we're all equal. And we all, we, what Isaiah say in Isaiah, is it 58? Isaiah 58. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He had mercy on us. Aren't you glad God didn't judge us? Had a little interesting thing you can study out. I had a pastor friend of mine. I sent him a question today and he sent me another one back I couldn't answer. He said, did Jesus, did God pour out all his anger on Jesus at the cross concerning humanity? He posed a deep question. And I thought about it a minute. I said, well, you know, in the Old Testament, he'd wipe them out. They get so, think about Noah, they're just so evil, just wipe them out and start over. He judged them. How many of you know nothing wrong? Hey, if you're the judge, you can judge, right? He's the judge. He created them, you know. Old Testament, they get, he'd wipe them out. New Testament, nobody's been wiped out that we know of by God but in mass, you know, and so... I thought about the day, and then I was looking over my notes. Well, the cross was where God says, hey, now I'll cover you. There's mercy and grace to help us in time of need. There's an avenue. There's a way of escape. There's, hey, there, there's the 
the, the, the cross, the price for us. That, and, and thank God for his mercy and grace. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Because we all deserve to be wiped out, right? All right. Okay, just my thought. You can study that out. I, I, and then I said, well, that's what I think. And he said, well, what about Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira in the Old Testament where they just died? God basically smote them because they lied to the Holy Ghost and lied to the church. I said, you're messing up my theology. That's all I had to answer for at that point. But, uh, hey, he's, he can do whatever he wants. Did you know he can change his mind? He can't go back on, on his word, but he can change his mind. He can, hey, he can relent. So, anyway, just a thought. And so, hey... Uh, no big I, little you in the church. We're all equal in God's eyes. It's the kingdom of, uh, it's the co- a new culture of kingdom equality. When people walk through the doors. Let me see if I got time. Yeah, I think I got quick time. Let me, let me tell you a little story. This happened years ago. And I think it kind of fits for me. It kind of fits here. It's a personal illustration. I was having a deep discussion with uh, a black friend of mine about racism. And I, and, and I said, I want to know how to deal with this. We're just having a good, healthy discussion. And he said, well, let me tell you, the first thing is a, is a good, good man. He said, first thing you've got to do is you've got to make sure there's none in you. I said, and I'm being honest, I'm thinking, I just don't think I have any. I don't think I do. I've been Christian a long time. I love everybody. I do. I did then. I do. That day, I found myself in a little Chinese restaurant over in Nederland somewhere by myself. I sat down, ordered a quick meal, uh, and four big black tattooed guys come walking in. They seated them in the table next to me. You know, they had looked like biker dudes. Well, without realizing it, Really, without realizing it, in my mind, it kind of this thought just kind of crept in. I wonder what those guys are up to. Just barely something slipped in. And I'm sitting there without even knowing it until the next thing I'm going to tell you happened, and then the light came on. I'm sitting there with these, these question marks, and it's kind of this uneasy feeling. And these guys' appetizers came. And they all took hands with one another and said, who's going to bless the food? <laughs> and they said, Jesus, we ask you. But no, but I mean, they're blessing their food big time. And all of a sudden I realized, I guess there's a little in there. Creeping around there somewhere. We all have issues. And listen, in the mind of God, in the heart of God, hey, red and yellow, black and white, rich or poor, young and old. Down and out or up and out. They're all equal in the eyes of God. Somebody say amen. Doesn't that make you feel good about being part of this kingdom? Amen. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. And so we're all equal in the eyes of God. And we all have to address these issues. Hey, did I not get a little transparent with you? Okay. You got to get transparent with yourself and look inside and say, when people walk through these doors, do I have preconceived notions and ideas? In fact, Beverly did this years ago at a ladies' meeting. She had one of her ladies dress up as a bag lady to be begging out beside the, behind the, in front of the restaurant, I think, where they were going. And nobody recognized her, and she's sitting out there. And some of our church ladies gave her a little money, and, and then Beverly invited her in. And you see ladies going, what's she doing here? She's not, you know. 
And then they had the big reveal. Some people were happy, some were sad. Oh, gosh. The lady who gave her money was happy. <laughs> it was a test. Uh, and so that's part one. Uh, no way, no big eye, little you. Uh, hey, we're all equal in God's sight. Somebody say one more amen. Now, that part two here, I think I can do it in about 15 minutes. Uh, it's in the form of, uh, and I'll call that, let me ask you a question. Now, have you ever had anybody, and this, I have to give you the tone of this so you'll understand. Have you ever had anybody, you get in a little conversation, somebody says, well, let me just ask you a question. You know what? They're, they don't want information. They got something they want to say. The question is not to learn an answer. The question is to formulate a question mark and then I'm going to give you the answer. Are you with me? Everybody say, let me ask you a question. Now, this is where James jumps in because he got a question. He's going to ask, but it is not for the purpose of gaining information. It's the, for the purpose of dispensing information. And let me just say this. Are there any, any former Catholics here? Anybody been in, uh, did you ever hear about catechism? Catechism, you ever hear the word catechism? Catechism is basically a teaching methodology that the church, the, the, the Catholic church used, but I, they may have learned it from James. I don't know. But it's this. Questions and answers. It's not questions to find out answers. Here's the teaching method. Uh, you know, what is two plus two? It's four. What is four plus four? It's eight. That's a simple, it's just a series of questions and answers. Questions and answers. It's catechism. That's what they call it. Uh, it's a, it's a teaching methodology. I think they may have got it from James because he's, he's popping questions. In fact, he, he does this throughout the book. He asks a few questions, uh, but here he, he gets deep, he gets serious about it. Verse 14, here's the question. It, he says this, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, stop right there. He doesn't want their answer. He's about to tell them the answer. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> That's the, I mean, James, now, what's the theme? You've got to have a faith that works, not only for you, but through you. And so he's jumping into the big thick of things. And he said, can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food? And one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him things which are needed for the body. What does that profit? There's the question. If you say you have faith, but it's not made manifest in works or ministry. Now, let me just, when you see the word works, let me just throw this out to you. Don't get confused. The scripture teaches that for by grace you are saved through what? Faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Everyone say works doesn't save you. In fact, Titus 3, 5, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things to get born again. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you about uh, Mayor Bloomberg. He thought he had bought his way into heaven. He said, I ain't even stopping for interview and I get to heaven. I'm just walking on in. I just put 50 million bucks up uh, at, uh, hopefully for the kindness of humanity to stop 
have gun control. But he's sadly mistaken. You can't do enough good works to get to heaven. The only way you get to heaven is through faith. You are, Romans 5, 1, you are justified, declared righteous by what? Faith. Are you with me? What does Romans 10 say? If we believe that he, that he died and he's buried, he rose again. If we believe that, we'll be saved. Believe that he died for us and he rose again and confess him as our Lord and leader. We'll be saved. Works do not save you. But once you get saved, there will be works. And so rather, so when we think of works, uh, we think of ho, hum, ha, hum. You know, like I'm going to, and we get this mindset of, you know, I'm just working for Jesus uh, and, you know, to, to better my position in place. You can't do that. Your works do not gain you any more favor with God. With that in mind, you got to understand that on the other side, as I said, works don't save you. Faith alone, as James will say in a moment, does not save you either. In other words, what he's going to clear up for these guys is it doesn't matter what you say, it's in what you do and the fruitfulness of your life that determines the validity of your faith. It's not just in a belief system. So with that in mind, I want to read this to you. Are you ready? Everybody say, go ahead, Pastor. Here we go. Now, all the way to verse 26. Verse 14, he asked the question, but here now is the answer. Verse 17. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith, he says, without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe, and then the the Greek kind of reads this way, and have enough sense to tremble. But do you want to know, now catch this, here's the pastor of the church. But do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is what? Dead. Now here comes illustration, here comes example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now, now catch this. What did Romans 5 say? You're justified by faith. But then he comes along with Abraham and he says, Was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? But now, you got to understand something. Abraham was a father of our what? Faith. And the scripture teaches that the reason he raised his knife to raise his son from the dead is that he, he believed, pardon me, he raised the knife to slay his son. Hebrews says that he believed that if he slayed him, God would raise him from the dead because he had the promised son. Uh, Isaac was his promised son. So in faith, he raised the knife, believing that if, if God wants me to go through this, through with this, God's going to raise him from the dead. So, but the, what, what James is saying here, the fact that he raised his knife is evidence of his faith. Now, he wasn't declared righteous by the fact that he raised the knife. He was declared righteousness that he had faith enough to raise the knife. You get the picture? So he said, Abraham, was he not justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? You getting it? And by works, faith was made perfect or complete. 
And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24. And you see then that a man is justified by works. Now catch this. And not by faith only. Okay, follow with me. Likewise, now, here's the contrast. What's he dealing with here? He's dealing with fat and happy church who are sitting around, I'm just believing God and doing nothing. I'm a Christian. Well, hello, where's the evidence? The evidence is in works, and he defines that by ministry to other people. He's not talking about, and, and you know, he's not, I thank God for Jeremy and our ushers. He's not just talking about passing the plate. He's not just about doing your duty in the nursery. It's, it's with a heart and a mindset of ministry to people. Why? Because we, hey, we're living in the kingdom of equality where we all love one another more than we love ourselves. And he says this, and here's the contrast. He says, Abraham was justified by faith. Now, and then he throws out a harlot. Rahab the harlot. Now catch this. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And then he says this, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, he's trying to get a point across. You can't just sit around and say you believe without there being bona fide evidence. Okay? So, and that's a problem. Because how many of you know our faith, the reason God gave us our, our faith was not only for us to be saved, but to be ambassadors for Christ. Ministers of God. Reconcile, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we're reconciled to God. Paul said we've been reconciled to God. We're new creations in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, so, so I beseech you therefore, brethren, be reconciled to God. And then he says, for you are ambassadors for Christ. So you get reconciled, then you get put into ministry as ambassadors for Christ. And so uh, we've got to, there's got to be evidence. So with that in mind, let me give you some little definition here and kind of kind of flesh it out. So you got the picture. Let's let's talk. And, and really, what he's telling is you got to get lined up. You got to get some things lined up. Everybody say line up. Here, number one, you got to get line. You got to line up what you say must line up with what you do. Now, verse fourteen. Go back there. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? does not have works. Now, then verse 15 and 16, he talks to them about what he's talking about when he's talking about works, ministry. So if you say you have faith and you believe in Jesus, it's got to coincide and be harmonic and in harmony with the lifestyle and the focus of your life. And it's not about me. It's not about mine. It's about us and we. And them. Are you with me? And then number two, what you say must line up with what you say. Now, let me explain that. That's not a typo. Now, verse 14, we say we have faith. Verse 16, but if you say to somebody who has a need, be warmed and filled... 
In other words, God bless you, brother. Now, we're talking about brother to brother. We're talking about family here. If you say to family who has a genuine need, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So what he's saying here, he said, listen, if you're going to have a faith that works, what you say has got to line up with what you say. If you say you have faith, what you say has to be representative of ministry and care and concern from depart. Bless you, brother. Depart in peace. Be warmed and feel. Well, how's that going to happen? Everybody say line up. So we find James here. He's trying to line people up with, with a proper, with a faith that works not only for them, but through them. Now I'm going to, anybody, anybody, hmm, gosh, anybody remember Dragnet? Sergeant Friday, one person, two, the old gray-headed people, dragnet. I think it was Sergeant Friday when he's, when he's taking, he's, he's interviewing the crime scene. What did he, what did he always say? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. I don't, I don't need to hear, I just need the facts. Don't give me all this. I'm, everybody say, just the facts, ma'am. Let me give you some faith facts that, 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 that really... James, he's just getting right, he's cutting right to the core. He's getting past the fluff. He's getting past the nicey, nicey, pastor, bless you. Let me rub your feet, make you feel good about life. No, he gets to the facts of our faith. Let me give them to you. Here it is. Now, he, now this is tough, but you got to get it. Number one, faith without fruit is a dead faith. Faith without fruit is a dead faith. And let me hit it, read them again. I've already read them once. Look in verse 17. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Everyone say dead. How many of you know dead is dead? Dead has no life. Dead is dead. Everybody say dead is dead. In other words, it's je- it's, how many, he's getting right up in, he's a jalapeno, I don't know, he's a nosy pepper. He's getting jalapeno business. If it doesn't have fruit, if there's no fruit in your life based upon what you say, it's, it's really not faith. It's just, it's just what you say. Look like at verse 20. What does he say? But do you know, and we're going to look at this again, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Look at verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Anybody get a get an idea of what Paul's, uh, pardon me, James tried to get across. If you think you've got faith, but there's no evidence by ministry and care for others, you're, you're just dead. That's dead. That is not real faith. And you've got to have a faith that works. And that faith is not working. How many of you know dead people don't work? Everybody say dead people don't work. Faith, it's de- it just doesn't work. There's no, there's no work. So that's just the facts. Now, let me just ask you this question. Where does faith come from? Well, it comes from God. He gave us a gift of faith. But what, is, what does Romans 10 say? Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing what? The Word of God. Now, faith comes, which is a gift from God, by when we open up our spiritual ears to hear the Word of God and what it's saying in our life. Anybody disagree with that? Everybody agree with that? Say amen. amen. Now, so the Word of God comes, faith comes by 
hearing the Word of God. And once we hear it and we begin to believe it, uh, it begins to build and, and faith is birthed in our hearts as a gift of God. Now, Hebrews 4.12, I believe, says, the Word of God is living and active. Now, what did, what did James just say about a faith that, that has no works or evidence? It's what? It's dead. So, follow with me. Faith comes into our heart because we hear, heard the Word. We opened ourselves up to the Word. And we began to believe God's Word. And, and Hebrews uh, 12, 4, 4.12 says this. Thank you. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active. How many of you know living and active things are always producing after like kind. If you're living and active, the Word of God is living and active in your life, it will always produce fruit in your life. Amen? Amen. So, faith fact number one, faith without fruit or works or evidence is what? It's dead faith. It's not, it's not valid. It's not real. All right. Faith fact number two, faith without fruit is no better than demonic faith. Demonic faith? What's demonic faith? Well, look in verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. But let me just tell you, even the demons believe that. And they got enough sense to tremble. You're not even trembling. You think you got it all figured out just because you say you believe and trust God and you can sit around on your blessed assurance and do nothing wrong. That's, hey, that's no better than the demon's faith. How many of you don't, I don't want my faith to be equated with a demonic faith or a demonic belief. That's a faith fact. How many of you know that's stout? I had an old preacher friend of mine who used to say this. That's stouter than nine acres of mowed garlic. I don't know why it was nine acres, but that's just his statement. And that's stout, man. Whoo! How many of you know he's getting up jalapeno business? He said, don't go bragging about your faith if there's no evidence. You're just like the devils. You're no better than the demons. They believe God is God and one God. All right. Faith fact number three. Faith without fruit is foolishness. Verse 20, <laughs> here he goes, here's the pastor. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Don't you want to know this, O foolish man? Now, interesting thing about the word fool here, uh, I, I, I did a little study. King James says vain, but the Greek is K-E-N-O-S, kinos, or kinos, kinos. It really means empty. Now, I like that from this context. He's talking to people who think they, they're doing great just because of what they say they believe, but there's no evidence in their life. They're sitting around their blessed assurance and doing nothing. He said, listen, you're empty. How many of you know when you're empty, you're empty? He said, empty man. There's nothing to offer. You have zero, nada, nothing. Because you think you have something, you have nothing. Because faith without fruit, it's just foolish, it's empty. You're just empty vessel. 
And I, hey, I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before God and have nothing. I got to have something. And he says, listen, if you think you can get to heaven with, with an empty vessel, with nothing, no fruit, no evidence, that's foolish. Whoo, somebody. I mean, he's, that's stouter nine acres of mowed garlic right there. And so he's just getting right up in their business. Uh, and, and then finally, let me say this, genuine faith, which the whole theme of this book, a faith that works, will always have tangible evidence. Everybody say always. That's the point of what he's trying to say. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence of your faith? He said, you know what he said? He said, I'll show you my faith by my works. There will be evidence. Now, then he gives Abraham illustration. There was evidence. And now to contrast, after Abraham, uh, yeah, Abraham, father of our faith. Yeah, I get it. Well, let me throw one out for you. You people who think you're somebody, and really you're a fool and you're empty. Rahab the harlot had more faith than you. <laughs> that don't fly in, my, in preaching circles today. You want to get it down into our vernacular? The slut down the street showed more faith than you do. Because she had a little evidence. How many of you know, he's busting down these religious walls. I mean, he's just ripping it down, throwing it down. Now, to m- next week, I'm going to clear up a little something. You may not even know it's a controversy. But did you know Paul says faith alone justifies you? And here comes James. He says, no, it's works. And it looks like a contradiction. I'll throw you one little thing out. How many of you know? Let me look at time. I'll give you one little. Yeah, I'm going to quit. Let me throw this out. If you went to the doctor, you you watch the doctor. He He has one patient in there. He says, you better get up off your hiney riney and get to walking, exercising, and, and get... Why? Because he's... You better get active. You better start pumping up. You better, get, you better watch what you eat. He says, you better get... The next patient down the hall... Don't you be... You cannot walk. No jogging. Okay? You can't do that. Why would he do that? Because that guy down the hall had a broke leg. This guy down here had diabetes. Different diagnosis for different problem. And I'll let you think about that, but when you know who Paul was dealing with? Lost people who had been under the legalism of the law. They got to do something to get God's good graces. I'm going to answer it already. And so they're going, well, what do I do? Do I need to, you know... Maybe I need to get circumcised. I don't know. Give me something to do because I know all my life long I've heard you got to do something to get in God's good graces. No, you don't have to do anything. For by grace you are saved through faith. Now James, he's got a different diagnosis. Here's a bunch of fat and happy Christians 
who've got greasy grace, and they just think they can sit around and bless God, everything's over, and do nothing. He said, no, you're, you deceive, you're foolish. So there's no contradiction. I answered it already. We'll maybe do a little more of that. But you read some. How many of you know there is no contradiction in the Word of God? If you look and you think there's a contradiction, you just got to dig a little deeper because God does not contradict Himself. Because let me t- this is God's Word. And this Word, let me just throw this out to you. This Word is not just informational. It's transformational. It'll transform your life. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So genuine faith will always produce evidence. Closing uh, uh, illustration, it's not in your PowerPoint notes, but he says this, final thing. For as the body is dead without the spirit, pardon me, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. He's just saying, come on, you know when you're dead, you're dead. When the body without the spirit, it's dead. Same way, faith without works is dead. Now, with that in mind, let me close with this. What can we begin to do this week to validate our faith, not only for God but for ourselves, with tangible evidence? Let me just ask you this. I ask myself, what tangible evidence does God see in me that would make him know that I'm a man of genuine true faith. We need to ask ourselves that. Because, hey, Pastor James here pulled no punches. I mean, pulled no punches. He told those guys, the harlot has a better faith than you. You're empty. So, with that in mind, let's stand together and pray. Whoo, James chapter 2. I didn't know I could do all that in 50 minutes or whatever I did it in. There's a lot more there. Let me just say, you could pick this thing. This is rich. Everybody go, this is rich. You could work this stuff over and massage it in a hundred different ways. And it just bring forth more light and, and truth into your life. Uh, and listen, James loved these folks, but he knew I gotta, hey, I gotta get jalapeno business here, because if we don't get a faith that works, this church thing is dying. This kingdom purpose is dying. If we don't get this prejudicial and partiality and discriminatory mindset out of us that has big eye, little you. This church is dying. We got to line up and we got to listen to the question, the answer. Faith without fruitfulness is dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. May it stir us tonight to, to be men and women of true, genuine faith that produces evidence and fruitfulness, and ministry, and care and concern for others, not only in the church, but around the world. Thank you, Lord. We love you tonight. Everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Love one another. Uh, before you leave, shake a hand, hug a neck, high five, and let's keep pressing forward.